Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. This episode, I'm talking to Paddy Manning, who's just released a new book, Body Count, How Climate Change is Killing Us. Paddy takes us through countless conversations with survivors of Black Saturday, the Queensland floods, and even the most recent bushfires, and examines whether these deaths can be attributed to climate change. We look at the link between climate change and health, and what we can learn from the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm really excited to be talking to Paddy today on this episode of Talking Australia. so much for being on the podcast today, Paddy. Yeah, thanks, Angela. Thank um, you for having me. And tell me, first off, what was the inspiration behind writing Body Count, um, What How Climate Change is Killing Us? Well, I felt that we've been talking about climate change for more than a decade in Australia, but in the wrong way, uh, that we're talking about climate change as though it's, you know, we get lost in parts per million of CO2 or a couple of degrees Celsius, you know, temperature rise or, you know, percentage emissions reductions by a certain year or, you know, what's your impact on your electricity bills? And people's eyes have glazed over. I think they tuned out a long time ago. Um, it's this kind of climate waffle, um, which is inside a kind of bubble. And, um, and, and it doesn't talk about the real impact of climate change now. Uh, and it's not a, you know, we talk about climate change as though it's, uh, you know, it's an environmental issue or as though it's, you know, something for future generations to worry about. Uh, but it's actually uh, taking, you know, the worst possible toll um, now already. It's killing people now in Australia. And um, and so I thought that we you could cut through by not getting lost in the kind of policy debate, but just by telling the true stories of Australians who've already, you know, suffered the most from climate change. And obviously in the book you interview victims of Black Saturday, victims of the Queensland floods and even recent victims of um, or even victims from the most recent bushfires and you sort of apply this sort of climate lens to their stories. How did they feel about that and what were those conversations like? Well yeah I had no idea what I was going to get. You know I set off on this um, process uh, in the middle of 2019 and um, and yeah, I was kind of interviewing people out of the blue, actually. Um, the very first person I interviewed was uh, a woman called Evelyn McLeod, whose father, um, Evelyn North, actually, um, McLeod is her maiden name, but her father, Chuck McLeod, uh, had died um, in a heat wave in Sydney at the end of 2018. And, um, and I found out about that story because a doctor from Western Sydney, uh, Kim Liu, who is a member of the Doctors for the Environment, had, had known this um, Chuck McLeod for 14 years. And, uh, and she got up at a rally, a Stopadani rally in Parramatta at the beginning of 2019 and said that for the first time she'd written uh, heat on the death certificate for Chuck. And normally, you know, heat deaths are underreported, you know, then 
Um, heat is actually, if you look over a long period of time, our greatest natural hazard in Australia. It kills more people than fire and flood and uh, all other natural hazards combined. Uh, but uh, it's underreported because it generally goes down on the death certificate as a heart attack or a stroke. Uh, and uh, in this case, Kim Lou, it was a heat wave. I checked with a climate scientist and, uh, and I, she felt that, you know, she could to tell the truth she should write heat on the um on the death certificate and she told that story and i got to uh chuck's daughter evelyn and she said look i don't know if you know the temperature that day was linked to climate change or not you know she's not a activist in any way but she said i i just want to get the word out that you know you've got to look after your old folks in the heat and when I spoke to scientists and public health experts about about heat and heat deaths, uh, you know, Chuck was an exact, an exact, you know, kind of example. Older, he was over eighty. He was diabetic. Uh, he'd already had a um, he'd already had a stroke, and uh, and and a bypass, and so he had lots of comorbidities. But that's the thing with heat. It's like there's a harvester effect. And it's the old, the frail, the young, the, you know, disadvantaged who suffer the most. And so I thought Evelyn's story was, you know, kind of proof of concept, if you like. You know, she was happy to talk to me about it. Uh, she wasn't, um, you know, uh, she didn't have, I thought she was probably representative of ordinary Australians in the sense that she didn't, she wasn't a climate policy expert, uh, but she was happy to, to talk to me about it and get the word out about the dangers of heat. And so from there, I went on. And then I would bowl up to little towns like, you know, uh, King Lake or Grantham or, you know, um, in the middle of Tasmania, a little town called Ooze where there was a flash flood in 2016 when the, when the um, East Coast low came through uh, in that election year. And, uh, and up to Townsville where they've just had the floods. I mean, you know, so I've tried to get around and just bowl up and knowing the name of the, you know, person who lost their life, I would just ask, go to a pub and ask, who, do you know the relative of this, you know, do you know anyone who knows this person? And um, and I got a few knockbacks, but by and large I also got, um, you know, uh, a preparedness to kind of talk from pe from pe both from people who, who are convinced that climate change is driving these natural disasters and from people who are sceptical or doubtful. And tell me, uh, tell me a little bit more about the thinking behind why you did want to frame climate change as a health emergency, because I guess there's lots of conversations these days about effective climate change communication. So obviously for you, that was a totally conscious decision to reframe that. Well, it was, but, um, but you know, because I didn't know what I'd get when I, when I started out, um, I sort of was just trying to tell the truth of the stories that I you know, that I encountered. Uh, and so I've, and so I haven't tried to kind of frame the conversations as much as uh, what I have done is do a lot of research so that to make sure that the case studies that I've selected are relevant, you know, um, and so that those occasions are, you know, there is a climate um, signal, if you like, there's a fingerprint, um, you know, behind, you know, a certain disaster. So generally what happens, it seems to me, is that we have, you know, a, a terrible disaster. There's a loss of life. It's tragic. And it's seen as sort of politicising or opportunistic to come in and start talking about climate change at that moment. And then 
the science that will actually detect and attribute, you know, a particular event to warming. Um, you know, warming made it more more likely by X percent or or more severe. Um, well, that takes years to come in, and then no one goes back and talks to the victims about, um, you know, or the survivors, if you like, who've lost people. No one goes back and tells them, "Hey, actually, did you know that there's an article in the most recent Nature magazine which which proves that actually, yes, that that event was made more much more likely by global warming." Uh, no, and so no one ever joins the dots. And I just thought it would would be a worthwhile exercise to go and talk to talk about global warming with the Australians who've suffered the most from it. And were you showing that sort of evidence that you just mentioned, like, because oh, obviously that evidence comes out after these events, were you showing that to some of the victims and, you know, what was their reaction? Well, um, it was interesting. In the, It's an interesting process, actually, because, because I wasn't trying to bowl up, stick a mic in someone's face and then bugger off. You know, what I was trying to do was um, get considered... Um, you know, reflections from people, given that these events are still raw and traumatic and uh, and make sure that I sent back to them in draft a copy of what they'd said and how I proposed to use it and what research I'd done. So, and I thought, well, it was possible that people would get cold feet once they saw it in print, what they, what they had, you know, told me, you know... Um, in a cafe, in the home, at the you know place where their you know parents died or kids died or you know uh, uh, anyway, I thought that some of them might get cold feet. None of them did. Uh, they did obviously you know make changes and corrections if I'd made a mistake and all that sort of stuff. But um, well, I was going to tell the story of David Tenner. Okay, his wife died in Cam- the Canberra bushfires of two thousand and three. Uh, her name was Alison. He um, was then working for the um, Air Force as a maintenance engineer up at the Richmond base, you know, in northwestern Sydney. And she was um, at home without the kids. The kids were up with the grandparents up on the north coast of New South Wales for a holiday. And she was at home alone in their uh, home in Duffy on the western suburbs of Canberra. I had already gone and interviewed scientists from the Bushfires and Natural Hazards um, Cooperative Research Centre down in Wollongong. And... They said to me that uh, the Canberra bushfires of 2003 were the first which had taken out more than a million hectares um, of land uh, that was started exclusively by dry lightning. In the most recent um, bushfires, you know, Royal Commission, one of the recent hearings, um, the Carl Braganza, the Bureau of Meteorology's um, climate scientist, said it was around 2003 that we those those Canberra bushfires that we really started to see fire behaviour changing. So now when I interviewed David about the loss of his wife, it's still very raw for him. And he says it's actually only in the most, you know, recent few years that he's been able to talk about it at all with anyone because, and that's partly because he's remarried and, you know, partly of the passage of time and partly also because, you know, he was part of a class action that sued the Territory Government over their mismanagement of the fire and failure to warn people and so forth. But he said to me in the very first interview I did with him on on the phone, uh, if it could be shown that those fires were started by dry lightning, then I would be convinced that it was linked to warming because my own observation is that, you know, and he's strictly a layman, he's not a climate scientist, but his observation was that 
there are more fires being started by dry, dry lightning. And, uh, and sure enough, yeah, when I spoke to the scientist, that, that is exactly what happened. That is exactly the case. And so he came to the point of view, like his view did change in the, in the process of, you know, telling me this story. Um, he came to the view that, yes, um, Alison, his wife, who died in the house, it was, she had seconds of warning, uh, you know, she was um, about to leave uh, in the car, ran back into the house to get something, not sure what, um, misunderstood a warning that was given by the Territory authorities, which was, you know, she'd done everything they said, she'd sealed off the windows, she'd filled the bathtub full of, full of water, then the fire's coming at her like a freight train and she thinks to get in the bath and dies there. It was the causes of the tragedy were, yes, climate started the fire, but yes, also they were right next to a plantation which was, a, which was dangerous. Most importantly, probably for David, uh, which is why he ended up suing the Territory Government, there was no proper warning. Um, you know, so Alison was kind of on her own in that moment and, uh, and, and unlucky. Uh, because you know, if she had stayed in the car, the car was the car didn't burn down. The house did, but if she had stayed in the car and not gone back, she might have survived. But you know, you had a fire that burned you know two or three blocks into that suburb, and you only had four fatalities. It's amazing that there weren't more. There should have been probably hundreds because um, there were so many homes. There were hundreds of homes lost. David came to the view that um, yes, Alison's story does belong in the in the in this book. Um, and one thing about the title is you, there's no mistaking what this book is about, you know. Uh, so when I bowl up to someone and say, oh, I'm writing a book called Body Count, How Climate Change is Killing Us, well, they know what the project is. And um, and he had said, I, I had coffee with him the other day, and he was saying, I'm glad that um, you've told the story and it's there for posterity, you know. Um, so... Um, that's a long, long answer to your question, but perfect. But it does. But it did. It, I think it changed his thinking, and I'm sure, like some of the some of the people that I've interviewed, I've had calls from them since once I've sent sent them a book, and they've rung me up and gone, "Thank you." Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just thirty dollars and save thirty three percent on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award winning magazine delivered to your home for just thirty dollars. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. In the future, what's your opinion on people looking at that and thinking, well, if we can talk about how climate change was the cause of these deaths and, you know, there's government inaction on climate change, what does that look like for future litigation and, you know, where, where does that go? Yeah, well... It's a big I, question. I know, I, and I don't know the answer and I, don't, and I can't, but I'm sure that there will... I mean, there already are, um, you know... Cases that have been brought. There's one in Holland for you know by young, by young uh, you know young people suing the Dutch government for failing to act and protect them and and winning. Uh, so uh, and there are a couple of cases that are on foot here in Australia as well. I think um, uh, you know look I'm no lawyer I, and I and so I can't say whether um, you know, it would be very hard to... It's hard enough to prove that climate change is driving a particular event or making it more likely or severe. Then to go the next step and say that it caused the death um, of a particular individual. Um, you know, in Alison's case, 
she that is the first death that I've talked about, 2003. Um, I think there is some science which suggests that that is some... It's, it's around then when climate change turned deadly in this country. But you couldn't pin it down to a date. You couldn't pin it down. You know, probably the first death was from a heat a heat wave that was, you know, driven by, um, driven unequivocally by warming, you know. So, um, so look, I don't, I don't know if you can successfully sue on, sue on any of, any of this, but, uh, but I do think that you, there is a, there is clearly a danger which we're failing to recognise and, uh, and which is, which is growing, you know. So these stories are, are intended in some ways to serve as a warning because, you know, it's not like I think people think about climate change as though, oh, the climate's changed. We have a new normal. Uh, we're just going to have to adjust. But it's not like that because it's continuing to change. We're still contributing to the problem. We haven't even stopped making it worse yet. Um, so so the risks are rising. And, and I can't prove that climate killed any of the people in this book. But I think you can draw when you read the book, you can see, geez, there's um there is uh we are running some pretty um extreme risks here. And one of the things that I, I hope people take out of it is that yes, okay, there is a joining of the dots that's going on, um, between, you know, the Canberra bushfires and the black summer that we've just had, or between the Queensland floods and, you know, the uh, flash flooding in Tassie in 2016 or the Townsville flood of 2019. These disasters seem to be coming at us faster, not to mention, you know, diseases like, you know, I mean, there's even there's an epilogue here about how the relationship between global warming and, and the new age of pandemics you know uh so plenty of links there but um but i but hopefully what i've done is just kind of survey um all of the health risks which scientists and health experts have been warning us about for 25 years in fact an australian um tony mcmichael was a pioneer in this field globally which is about to go perfectly into my next question your book references the work of tony michael mcmichael so much can you tell me a little bit about who he was and what the what impact he's had on your writing? I stumbled on him by accident because all of the people that I was, all of the health experts that I was interviewing had, were one way, not all of them, but most of them, were one way or another connected to him. They were... They were protégés he'd, like he'd, or he'd supervised their research or they'd, you know, jointly written articles or, you know, so he, he was kind of... As I went along doing my interviews with experts, he was kind of uh, looming large as a figure. He was a South Australian-born pioneer. He was a pioneering epidemiologist. He um, he was born in South Australia, and one of his first groundbreaking studies was of the um, exposure to lead poisoning at um, Port Pirie. And he uh, pioneered... The healthy worker effect, which basically led to an upgrade in worker um, safety uh, legislation around the around the world. What he did was, in a book called uh, Planetary Overload in 1993, he was one of the first to look at the health consequences of climate change, and he was the first. He wrote the first for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change second assessment report in um, 1995. He wrote the first chapter 
on the health risks of climate change. And he followed that up. That became kind of a mission for him. He, he helped set up Doctors for the Environment here. He helped set up the Climate and Health Alliance here. Uh, he spent the next 25 years mining that kind of research vein, if you like, and raised a whole generation of um, scientists. I feel like over the past maybe two years, there's been maybe um, a better understanding of the health impacts of climate change. But we're only maybe over the past few months, we're starting to understand those mental health impacts that it may have. So I want to talk to you about why you decided to include um, the story of Andrew Wilford and how, what you think that added to the book. Uh, the mental health aspects of climate change, I was thinking of it in terms of drought, the impact of drought, in particular on you know farmers, rural and regional communities that have you know suffered from drought the most. And uh, there's a lot of research about the connections between drought and you know greater incidence of mental you know illness, because you do hear stories of farmers that have committed suicide, but there's a rising kind of incidence of um, eco-anxiety, climate grief, um, psychologists talking about seeing people that are worried, that are you know desperately worried about the future of the planet and it's making them unwell. There are some groups of people that are particularly exposed. Climate scientists, are, it's taking a toll on them. It's also taking a toll on climate activists and uh, who get burned out. I got um, told about the suicide in 2012 of um, Andrew Wilford. Now, he was a climate activist, probably on the conservative side, you know, politically. He was an engineer. And I interviewed his wife, Rosie. She gave me the story of the, the run-up of how he'd, he'd been through, he'd suffered burnout professionally before. He'd suffered depression and he then kind of made it a bit of a mission to talk about that. And um, and he'd had a nervous breakdown. He was over. He was a workaholic, and he he burned out when he was um, working on the maintenance of um, uh, F-111s up at um, Amberley at Brisbane, the Amberley base. And uh, and but he had recovered very well, and had you know um, and had taken on board. He was working with a group of engineers called um, that were volunteering for a group called Beyond Zero Emissions. Um, which is, you know, set up in, I think, 09, 10, and uh, was looking for solutions to climate problems. They weren't, they're not a green group in the sense that they were professional campaigners. They were trying to um, pull together their technical kind of ability and focus on whatever solutions were necessary guided to, to the problems which the science was, you know, confronting us with. And he just, he spiralled at, you know, after a, you know, period of time, uh, it was, you know, I was looking back, it's quite sad on his Facebook page. Um, you know, some of the posts that are all still up there, um, you know, at that time in Queensland, uh, you had the denial of state government, uh, of Campbell Newman elected, um, you know, running around, you know, trashing everything and proposing to take climate science off, you know, school syllabuses and, uh, you know, he was posting about that. Um, I think he also had had a prof he hit a rough patch professionally. He had a PhD thesis that was, you know, not completed and was weighing on him. Uh, and yeah, he just um, he just went for a drive to a secluded spot and yeah, took his life. 
And uh, Rosie, you know, they had no idea. They had no idea what was coming. It turned out that he had seen a doctor. Uh, she was furious with that doctor that that the doctor had not raised it with her. Um, you know, there was a letter that um, Wilf had written um, to to the doctor, which she wasn't aware of, you know. And um, so it's a tragic story. Um, and, look, if, if Rosie had said to me, I, I think climate change had nothing to do with it, to be honest, there were other things going on in his life, well, then obviously I wouldn't have included it in the, in the book. But I'd been told that his story was, you know, it was certainly had an impact amongst a, you know, small group of climate activists who knew him. And when I spoke to Rosie, uh, it was sad. She said to me, basically, as I record in the book, that, you know, he felt that he, he, he's a fixer, he was a doer, and he couldn't fix this problem. It's quite relatable, really. If you look at the COVID-19 pandemic and how that was that can be attributed to ecological breakdown um, and you look at climate change, also ecological breakdown, but you compare responses by the government to COVID-19 and to climate change, obviously there's a lot left to be desired. What do you think we can learn from the way we've dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic and how can we apply what we've learned to, the, to our kind of our, what do you call it, our climate change action? I think there's a really healthy debate about that already. And uh, and I was surprised to find that actually if you chart the rise of these emerging infectious diseases, in particular zoonoses spilling over from animals, animals to humans, that really has gathered pace over the last few decades. And so this, although it's kind of come to us out of the blue, uh, I suppose lay people, it has been predicted by experts that we were going to have a pandemic like this for years and uh they've been warnings of disease x quite explicit it would be a respiratory virus highly infectious um by um uh, one scientist peter dashak uh who 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 was an expert who had written explicitly um you know we're and was working on with other doctors around the world we are um we're going to have a pandemic so we have had warnings um uh but We've probably not paid enough attention. So, you know, starting with HIV, AIDS uh, back in the 80s, um, then we've had, you know, we've had SARS and MERS in Australia. We've had, you know, like the um, Hendra virus. Um, luckily, we were able to cope with that, um, but it uh, could be a devastating uh, virus. And I think the response, you know, there's a lot that the Australian response can show us in terms of pointing the way forward for action on climate change. Just listening to the experts is one obvious kind of lesson. Um, you know, what we've seen through Prime Minister, you know, Scott Morrison and the National Cabinet is a willingness to set aside partisan politics and to be guided by the chief medical or chief health officers around the country. You know, geez, it would be good if they would do exactly the same thing and be guided by scientists and engineers on on our response to climate change. It also shows, I think, the pandemic shows us that collective action, you know, um, our, our public health system, the discipline of social distancing and, and lockdowns, you know, it's sort of everyone acting together. I think there is a lesson in, 
in that, that we do need to kind of look look after each other and that there is a role for government. Well, the book is very special to me because I feel like I read a lot of climate change books that are very much grounded in the future. And what I love about this book is that it's very much in the now, in the today and in the past decade. And it's, re- it's really good analysis of situations that maybe we just forgot about or maybe we didn't really fully analyse what they meant. Um, I'm wondering... What do you hope the reaction is from people and what are you hoping that they learn from the book? I've tried to write it to be as accessible as possible um, to let the stories carry the reader. That's what I'm hoping I've been able to do. And so I'm trying to get reach outside a climate bubble audience, um, as many people as possible. Australians, when the chips are down, will look after each other. And I found that uplifting despite the grim title and the horrible kind of danger that we're heading into but there is a lot you can do to make our communities much more more resilient and it's just a case of turning on the light bulb to to say oh we're going to have to get serious about this now and manage these manage the risks of heat manage stop building in fire prone areas stop building on floodplains you know stop um stop building hot boxes that are you know, going to kill, you know, old people because they've got no um, cooling, you know, they've got no natural cooling, you know, there's a, we need canopy, we need shade, we need, you know, uh, there's a million strategies that we haven't even begun to really implement because we haven't taken the health risks of warming seriously. Well, I guess that's sort of a hopeful note to, um, to end on in terms of community spirit and, you know, if all goes to crap, well, at least we've got each other. <laughs> um, well, thanks for coming on the podcast today, Patty. Thank you, Angela. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Thanks for listening. Until next time.